Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got a guy whose name I really find it easy to pronounce because uh, we share something in common. But I, I honestly think this guy's kind of got it in the wrong spot. But uh, my guest today is Paul Shannon. Uh, welcome to the show, Paul. Glad to have you with us. Shannon, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I shouldn't. It almost uh, sounds like an echo chamber in here. It's Shannon and Shannon and Paul and, you know, uh, yeah, I pick up a lot of pizzas for Mr. Net because my last name is Rob Net, and people ask me, you know, what's your last name? I give them my last name, Rob Net. They think I'm unqualified to answer the question, so I walk out, walk out with a pizza for Mr. Net. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you probably uh, run into the same thing. But uh, where are you at in the world, and where is uh, where is uh, that as far as what you're working on? And then, uh, you know, are you working in your hometown and those kinds of things? Let's just get started with a brief bio on where you're at and what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Happy to provide that. So um, I spent the first 15 years of my career in medical device, capital equipment sales. I was doing uh, sales in the operating room for cataract surgeons, the equipment that's used and the implants that are used for cataract surgery. Uh, served me well for, for quite a long time. Um, I started investing in real estate back in 2016. Um, I had uh, done some single family flips, some buy and holds using the burst strategy and got into small multifamily, kind of saw the scalability. Uh, towards the end of my corporate career, I was losing control of my time and I started to have kids as well. And I was traveling 80 nights a year. I was working 80 hours a week and my values weren't quite aligning with what I was doing day to day anymore. So uh, I was enjoying what I was doing with real estate. Again, saw the scalability with it. And then on top of that, I kind of saw some macro things going on in the market that led me to believe that real estate was a must in portfolios if I ever wanted to retire. So with that as additional fuel to the fire, I made the transition. I jumped in uh, to real estate full time back in 2019. Uh, total, total have acquired 150 units, uh, have just over 100 in my portfolio today. Uh, and I've done that through kind of a mix of flipping uh, uh, single family homes to create capital that I can use to then reinvest in the multifamily, which I've done a lot of what I call recycling capital, uh, also known as the burst strategy, and kind of stacking units on top of one another and using that same capital over and over and over again to grow. I've also um, invested passively in real estate syndications. I like the mailbox money and not having to do a lot of the work as well. And it helps me diversify away from myself as an operator locally, which uh, all my active portfolio today is currently pretty hyper-local. Uh, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, it also allows me to diversify geographically uh, with that, you know, participate in some of the markets that are having, uh, you know, kind of this appreciation boom that are more uh, driven by appreciation than cash flow, which is sort of the opposite of where, where I'm at in the Midwest, uh, getting into markets like North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Arizona, uh, and kind of riding on the coattails of strong operators. So a mix of uh, a lot of different strategies and uh, experiences in real estate. I've done property management, uh, project management, um, you know, obviously the sourcing and negotiation, raising capital, et cetera. So it's been a fun journey so far. 
So, you know, it's, it's funny because you really make the case for the average person to be involved in real estate, while a lot of people believe that you have to have some sort of, you know, special education. And, and, and then yet we see a lot of, and I'm going to upset my realtor friends, even though I'm a fourth generation realtor, you know, my son's a fifth generation realtor. We see a lot of people that think real estate is really super easy and then fail at it. What do you think your uh, what do you think your success was where others have failed? Because clearly, uh, you know, your sales and marketing, great, but how did that translate to real estate to give you that successful edge to go from where you were at working? I mean, look, I don't know how you look at your calendar, but if you're really working 80 hours a, a, a week, you, you don't have time for a, a side hustle, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there had to be something to give there because, I mean, if you're out of town 80 days a week, uh, working 80 hours a week, you probably have an 80% chance of getting a divorce, right? And that's not <laughs> what you're looking for. So how did you fit that in and make that something that works and, and, and with your skill set that really wasn't focused on this at all? Right. Great question. Um, I'd start with what I didn't do well, and that goes back to analysis paralysis. Okay. I wanted to do this a decade ago and I waited on the sidelines for way too long. I read way too many books. I didn't take action soon enough. But when I decided that I needed to start down the path of actually tangibly doing something about it, I found others that were ahead of where I wanted to be. So I found mentors. I found people that I could go around to job sites with and watch them actively communicate with contractors and see what they were dealing with on a day-to-day basis when they were flipping homes how they were evaluating and underwriting multifamily properties, uh, how the industry worked from the inside out, essentially. And I think a lot of people in today's real estate market want to jump in and they want to get started and they want to skip a lot of the steps. For me, I was very methodical, almost to a fault initially. Um, But then, you know, as I was transitioning and saw that I wanted to get into this full time, I went ahead and I got my real estate license. Um, I thought maybe I would sell and do some transacting uh, for, for buyers and sellers on the retail side. Ended up figuring out I didn't like doing that. Uh, I managed my own projects. So I had some headaches with contractors uh, while I was transitioning away from W2 work. Uh, there were times when I thought, gosh, I'm never around. My wife's really not going to be happy. I've got to go over and work on this project. These contractors let fall apart. Uh, myself, literally get out a paintbrush and, and take care of it. Um, you know, I started doing property management. I managed about eight homes and did leasing. I, I was at the property doing open houses for prospective tenants. I was learning property management software. I was uh, you know, looking at applicants' uh, credit histories and criminal records and, and the whole nine yards from soup to nuts. So it, it really was very granular and that's not scalable. Uh, but what it did is it allowed me to kind of understand the business from the ground up and take the components of it and kind of outsource the stuff that I really didn't like doing. Take property management, for example. I'm not sure how anybody can manage a property manager if you've never done the job yourself. But just the limited experience that I had had, and it gave me enough to really kind of understand their uh, their inputs and what they do in the business so then I could feel confident that I could outsource that, uh, basically give them my investment to take care of and feel good about it. So um, you know, I would say that for anybody that doesn't have a real estate background or construction background, it's very doable. Um, just have a process, you know, find a mentor, find people that you can get around that are doing things on a bigger scale than you are, soak as much as you can, and then start taking one step at a time. The journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. You know, so Paul, let me just go out on a limb here and say you're a little bit of a control freak, huh? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know, but picked it's, up on that quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, 
but you know, the, and and I'm I'm with you on a lot of that. Uh, but I also agree that if you're around mentors, you can learn what a good property manager does, so you don't have to do that in order to be that, right? So I so I see where where the simplicity could have happened in your world, and you could have advanced yourself further faster. I think had you been uh, a little bit more. Uh, plugged in with a mentor early on, you know, books are great, but how do books work out, you know, but, but working with real people, I kind of hear that. So, so I really, I, I mean, I feel you. And, and I, I talk to so many people that have that same issue, right? They, they, I mean, it, you don't understand it's a $300,000 purchase. It is, it really is. But a quick evaluation of the downside, which you're much more likely to do now than you probably were 10 years ago, Quick evaluation of the downside, you could put in two or three things that would protect you, that would give you the runway, i.e. a little bit of a savings account to cover some rent payments. Uh, maybe a, a property manager that, that, you know, doesn't mind showing you what's going on and, 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 you know, or a mentor earlier, you know, gosh, I don't want to spend money on a mentor. This was my thing. I don't want to spend money on a mentor because that's expensive. So are mistakes, dumb, dumb head, right? Which is where I was at, right? I mean, I, I, have, I have lumps and I have a dollar for every mistake I ever made because the second, third, and fourth time I figured out how to get it right. But if I had spent that money with a mentor doing things quicker, where would I be, right? So I hear you and, and I love the fact your journey is very similar to mine. Everything that I do in my syndication business and the, the model that we do, I've already done, Right. I mean, I've done everything from move a house to remodels to, to burrs to I, I've done it all. There's some things I like better than others, and I'm able to hone in on that and, and use my expertise that way. But at the same time, um, you know, I agree with you that you've got to just get started. So now that you've gotten started, you said that you're hyper focused on you executing your personal business plan in your local area, but you like working with out of town syndicators, other uh, general partners on deals uh, in other areas, other markets. How do you determine with your capital, because uh, your last name's Shannon, not Bezos, so I understand you do have some limited resources, right? Uh, but how do you determine how when you invest in your local market and when you invest with someone else in another market? Uh, so, I guess uh, to answer that question, I, I have to go back to how much I've allocated towards real estate in general and why I decided to allocate that amount. So uh, if you look at the 60-40 stock bond portfolio that's often touted by financial advisors, the 40% that makes up the bond allocation has historically provided a few things for investors, capital preservation, a hedge against economic slowdown, income, and the opportunity to appreciate. Those are the four big ones right there. Sounds a lot like real estate, Bonds are not providing really any of those things. You can see that today. They're getting creamed, absolutely crushed. Uh, and the yeah. interest rates are inversely related to bond value. So as interest rates go up as they are today, the value of those bonds is going down. So back in the 90s, if you were getting 6 8% on a 10-year treasury or whatever the, the corporate rates for bonds were back then, uh, that did offer a little bit of balance, especially in a declining interest rate environment. In our environment today, you're standing on the beach naked when the tide goes out. So I looked at that 40%, I looked at retirement, I thought there's no volatility protection here, there's no income being paid. Uh, this is a bad story to tell. So real estate fitting a lot of the bills that bonds do, minus the liquidity in some cases, 
Um, I just sort of felt like real estate was a necessary piece to my portfolio as I, as I got older. Um, and it was a way to, to, to fill my time too. If I was going to leave W2 work, I needed something to do. So I decided to make it a business. So I basically took 40% of my overall capital that I had and I diced it in half. I took half of it and I said, okay, I'm going to go into passive income investments. I'm going to learn the syndication business that way. I'm going to diversify markets among sponsors uh, and kind of get away from myself and my active income. On the active side, obviously, I've got more control. You mentioned I'm a control freak. I love that piece of my portfolio. Uh, I generally get better returns there. I feel as though I have more liquidity because I have control as to when I execute my plan, how quickly I refinance it, what assets I purchase, and uh, how I can control my velocity of money, essentially. Um, so half and half, 50-50 active and passive. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. No, and, and, and you know, I, thanks you for going into the why, because I think that's very important. You know, a lot of people look at it and go, well, I just, you know, there was a deal in front of me, so I had to do a deal. Um, gosh, we have a lot of people that had to do a deal because they had money, not because they had a purpose and a plan, right? Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned was, uh, you know, where we're at with bonds and where we're at with interest rates. As you're recycling your capital, as you're coming to conclusion on your business plan and or uh, some of the other uh, GPs are coming to conclusion. What are your thoughts as we move forward with rising interest rates uh, and the multifamily market? Um, it's a perilous time right now. Honestly, there's sort of a disconnect, I feel, in the marketplace where we stand today in the middle of May 2020 uh, between you know, expectations from sellers who have enjoyed you know, obviously a huge boon in pricing over the last 12 to 18 months, call it. Um, and buyers who have been participating in that upswing, but now kind of are looking at it and saying, okay, well, the cost of capital is going up. Capital markets are changing almost daily. Uh, how do I even underwrite this thing? You know, if my plan was to come in and, re and, and reposition the asset and then refinance it in three years, where are interest rates going to be in three years? Um, you know, what's my takeout loan rate going to be? You know, how expensive is my interest rate cap going to be? Am I going to have to use those extensions? Uh, if I plan to sell before that, not refinance, what's the terminal cap rate going to be? Your cap rate's going to decompress in this rising interest rate environment. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know any of those things. But what I do know is what I just told you. So when I look at OMs, I try to point out where are the holes here. You know, who's, who's actually telling the whole story of this asset? Who's looking at it from protecting the downside? And I always start there. And if I feel like I can't do that, then I'm usually out. But um, there's got to be you know, significant upside typically, um, you know, for me to be interested on the value add side. And then worst comes to worst, uh, I'm holding the assets. So I really don't like to use variable floating rates. I like fixed rate debt. Um, I like to lock in and just let it ride. That gives me a lot of flexibility in what I do with the asset. And, uh, and some of the smaller stuff that I've done, you know, I call them mid-sized multifamily, 40, 50 units. I finance those and uh, credit unions or community banks. So there's a little bit more flexibility. I don't have to worry about yield maintenance that year, you know, four or five if rates are going down and I decide I want to dump the property. Um, I don't have to worry about a takeout loan uh, with a bridge lender that's, uh, you know, looking to take the property away from me if things don't go perfectly. Um, so I think it's, it's really just protecting the downside by being educated on what's not in the offering memorandum. Um, looking at, you know, rent growth with, with a, you know, fine tooth comb, how much realistically can you get? Don't underwrite you know, uh, burning off loss to lease in six months and then achieving your pro forma rents in a year and then having ongoing six, 7% rent growth for your whole period. It's just not realistic. Um, you got to be more conservative than that. So, And that's where, you know, 
there's so much that you you said there. Let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, there's so much that we see where people are underwriting that have gotten into syndication lately, right? We forgot that six months ago, we had about the lowest rates in the last 5,000 years, right? Literally, if you check history, Corona brought us uh, that was the one, one of the one of the tangible benefits we had was interest rates that were lowest they've been in five thousand years. That's not normal. So when you've underwritten to that, when you've underwritten to twelve percent rent growth, when you've underwritten those kinds of things, those are and should be huge red flags, like you mentioned, Paul. Because when you see that, you see a lack of experience, right? You see somebody that is not sitting there going. Uh, or, or you see a deal that's so skinny that in order to get to a return that somebody would pay attention to, they've got to do that. You know, I've started to see with some of the much more experienced syndicators, their realistic uh, returns have dropped to 12 and 13%. Not because they, they are doom and gloomers, but that's where their middle of the fairway is. That's where their risk challenge becomes their reality where they can say, I can underwrite this way and I've been doing it for a long time. And this is what I can, I can say with as much confidence as you can put together an OM, right? That rates are typically in this area. Typically we see cap rates follow rates by 2%, right? We've seen that kind of go, that's compressed because of supply and demand, but there's so many things that just because you put the numbers on paper, doesn't mean they're reality. And there's a lot of people out there that we're going to find out we're drinking their own Kool-Aid, uh, you know, kicking this number this way. And if we adjust that one up and this one down and this one over, we can get it to do what we want. Well, you know what, with enough filters, I look really incredibly handsome, right? Uh, but, but, you know, that's the reality that you can make the spreadsheet say something. It's just making sure that it conveys a doable truth, right? Something that makes sense uh, front to back. And so I really see where, uh, you know, these, these kind of informational things are helpful and where you can get that experience. So when someone's looking at that and they're underwriting and when you're underwriting, what are you looking at as we go into the next six months versus what you were underwriting in the previous six months? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Well, I think, you know, to go along with what you're talking about before, how does somebody that doesn't have the experience get into this? I think you have to be a, a steward of financial markets. And that doesn't just mean what's going on in your, you know, your specific backyard as it relates to real estate or to rest multifamily. It, it, it relates to personal finance, the economy, macro, microeconomics, and kind of understanding the flow of money and how liquidity affects different assets. Everything is sort of tied together. Um, so when I look at you know, the news today, it seems as if the Fed has really telegraphed that they're going to be, you know, bumping up the federal funds rate by another 100 basis points or so during the next two FMOC meetings. So uh, they just did 50 basis points, was it last week? So rates are on the rise. Uh, whether that, you know, impacts cap rates, we don't know. You know, it could be that rates rise by X amount and cap rates actually stay flat. They could decompress slightly. Uh, they could continue to compress further because there's so much liquidity and demand out there. So we really don't know what will happen to cap rates, but we do know that the cost of capital is going up. Um, so when I look at that, I just take a conservative lens to it. And when I underwrite, I'm looking at, okay, if I have you know, a year, 18 months to execute my operational plan on the value add side, what are rates today? I'm going to add 100 basis points to my takeout loan. So I know that when I go to uh, permanently finance that, 
uh, that's going to be about where I am. I feel comfortable that, you know, I can still make the deal work within those parameters. If my plan is to sell it, I'm going to stretch that terminal cap rate. You know, if, if it's a five cap market today, I want to see what that pro forma looks like and what my sensitivity table looks like at a six or a six and a half. Uh, rent growth assumptions. I think a lot of people are winning deals based on how aggressive they are on their pro forma with rent growth. Um, you know, the, the, the New York Fed just released some data that shows that between the 20, uh, February 2022 and February 2023, their expectation, consumers' expectations are that rent will increase by 11.2%, I think it is. And then annualize that over the next five years, and the expectation is that it will grow at 5%. Well, that would be excellent if that were to happen, but I'm not going to count on that because those are expectations, not reality. So I think it's probably feasible, depending on the market you're in, that we have above the norm as far as rent growth through this year. And that's, that'll start to taper down. And then after year two or three, I'm going back to two to 3% rent growth uh, in my pro forma. It's interesting too, like when, when you talk about underwriting and, uh, and newer sponsors, I had uh, an example of this a couple of weeks ago. I went to a joint venture partner, a high net worth person on a deal that we were underwriting. We submitted an LOI on ultimately we lost the, uh, we were not awarded the, uh, the opportunity, but as I was presenting it to him, um, it had about a 13 IRR and he said, Paul, this is great. I like the location the property looks good. Your plan seems strong, but I'm used to seeing 18, 22% IRR. I said, hold on just one second here. Let me pull up my spreadsheet. Let me share my screen with you. I changed just a few numbers, the terminal cap rate. I changed my rent growth assumptions. Um, and then I changed my expense growth assumptions as well. And just lowered those down a little bit. You see a lot of times people will predict there'll be five or 6% rent growth, but 2% expense growth in a super inflationary environment where they won't adjust for taxes or something right. like that. Right. So I made just a few tweaks to the spreadsheet. And I said, there you go. There's your 19% IRR. Are you ready to invest? Well, and, and this <laughs> is exactly what, you know, I look, Everybody that's been involved in real estate in the last 24 months has been lucky beyond belief, right? This is not a normal market. Does that mean that we can't capture it? Absolutely. Does it mean we can predict it? Absolutely not, right? And more importantly than that, we can't assume that it's going to continue like this because what that does is that puts us and our investors at risk. And the worst thing that you can do in a syndicated world is to disappoint your investors, to not hit your margin, right? I mean, look, I would rather be lucky than good any day in the sense that I would rather eclipse my, uh, my, my returns. You know, last deal we exited, we were shooting for a 19, we got a 39, right? 39% IRR, everybody loses their mind, right? But just as easily, that could have gone from a 39 to a 19 in the next six months if we hadn't paid attention, right? So the reality is, and this is the thing that that, that even uh, the flip side of that is educating our investors of why. Why do we underwrite this way? Why is this all we're assuming? Why don't we see more? And why can't you promise me this, right? And so those things, and, and I love what you're saying, Paul, because we're able to bring that down and go, okay, guys, I can get you really comfortable or really excited. But I can't get you really comfortable and really excited at the same time because those intersect through reality. And there's that part of reality that we can't predict the future. We can very comfortably say we're going to have inflation for the next 12 months. We can very comfortably say we're going to have rent growth. 
But to say we're going to have 14% or 19% rent growth like we've had in my market for the next 12 months, I don't know, right? At some point, there comes a place where reality, supply, demand, uh, rates, all of this kind of collides. And then there's the general public's pocketbook, right? How much more can the, can the populace stand? I mean, as we know, Paul, uh, inflation guts the middle class. It, it absolutely destroys the lower class. It doesn't really affect the upper class. Upper middle class survive just fine. But, you know, when you're talking about most people that are in the apartment world, especially C's and D's, they're getting destroyed by inflation because they just simply don't have another 50 bucks for 10% rent growth on $800, right? Or, or uh, that would be about a 7% rent growth, right? But you just simply can't get there. And so you're having that constraint and you're having to be there. So I, I really applaud you for, for taking that kind of a pragmatic approach that goes, yeah, I get it. Uh, I'd love to excite you and energize this thing, but we've got to deal with reality because, and this, this also goes back to another very valid point with real estate. If you're wrong, if you even at your 13% have overestimated it, I'm not saying you have disclaimer, 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 right? But if you did, the beautiful thing about real estate is you just extend your runway, right? You don't have to sell it unless you're in a high leverage situation. You haven't underwritten properly. You haven't. In, so now you look at the other guy that said, hey, man, I underwrote it for this and this and this and this. And man, we're going to make 30 percent. It's going to be wonderful. They have the opportunity that maybe not only did they not even get close to that, they're underperforming, they're underwater, and the asset has to be has to be sold and then the investors are losing money, right? So, so it's, it's always, always, always better to look at it and look at the history. And in a lot of cases in your underwriting, Paul, wouldn't you agree, take out the last 18 months, don't consider the last 18 months in your underwriting. Go to pre-COVID with your underwriting. And what was normal then? What did the environment smell like then? We had great growth. We had, you know, we, we still had a very positive environment. So as you're looking forward, Paul, and, and you're seeing how your investors are sensitive to that, they've gotten trained, you've done a good job, other people have done a great job, uh, everybody's done a great job of getting good returns. How do you see that you're going to be protecting your underwriting and your investors and their minds, their, their, their expectations moving forward uh, in, in your deals as you continue to do that? Is it just going to be the same as what you've done? Put the expectation no. out there that, that these are realistic? I think if you don't change in this business, you die. And I think if you always swing for the fences, you get crushed. It's a, it's a singles and doubles game. You want to survive. And surviving entails not losing your investor's principal, first and foremost. People can understand a story behind why uh, you know a specific asset didn't perform to pro forma. But at the end of the day, they're not going to understand you losing their money because that's just bad business. Uh, you need to be prepared for all scenarios um, and I think that starts with conservative underwriting. I know it's kind of taboo to say that, but um, we are underwriting today to longer term holds, uh, lower leverage, because that's what the capital markets are telling us. Um, that could be anywhere between 55, 65% LTV, uh, 10 year fixed term debt. Uh, I think if you're, if you're looking at bridge, high leverage, you're kind of playing with fire right now. Some of those players are going to end up dropping out of the market. Liquidity is next, I think, to kind of take a hit. We know interest rate risk has been there. 
but liquidity risk is also a, a, a potential down the road. Um, so with those lower leverage and that longer term hold period, um, you know, we're anticipating lower returns for the short term. If we get better than that, then, um, you know, we'll be happy. But uh, 12, 13 percent IRR, where else are you going to find that? And if we project that and we can sell that, uh, we actually surveyed uh, the investors I have in my in my database and kind of laid out some questions that were multiple choice. Will you would you accept these returns, et cetera, et cetera? And we were pleasantly surprised that. If we could tell a story behind the asset and we had protected the downside, people were okay with that because you can't find that kind of return anywhere else in other assets right now. The other thing that you got to look at too, Paul, is inflation is eating the dollar, right? Inflation is eating your fiat currency of just about any variety. So let's not just isolate and single out the dollar. But you know, if you're if you're not if you if your money's in the bank account according to CPI, which I think is bogus, uh, you're you're losing seven point nine percent of your dollar every year right? It's impossible to lose 7.9% of your dollar when your gas doubles, right? However, if you're losing 7.9% or you're investing in real estate and making 12, the way I count it, you're back to 19% because you hedged against loss and went to the other side where you actually got return. And now numbers are the same. It's just about taking into account the whole perspective and seeing where you're at and what's going on. You know, so that's, I think, another very viable way to look at it is, Okay, CPI says we're going down. My real estate is protecting me and going up. That's right. Yeah, inflation is, is typically been good for rents, uh, and, and particularly with multifamily, that's uh, usually outpaced inflation. Uh, you know, if wages go up, if rents go up, if the way you collect your income goes up, uh, it offsets the negative uh, impact of inflation. So assets that tend to rise in value or, or rise in uh, the way that they pay you during inflationary times are good. And then inflation works in another way too. If you use fixed rate debt, because if those same wages and that same income goes up five years from now, it's higher than it was before. Your fixed rate debt payment is the same. So the debt burden is actually right. easier to service. Oh, yeah. That has gotten cheaper, so to speak. Oh, yeah. um, and, and that's a great thing. So, um, yeah, in both cases, and you know, that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand is that you're paying, you're making an agreement on debt. You're making an agreement to pay yesterday's debt with tomorrow's dollars, right? And in the history of the United States, we've not seen a devaluation or a deflation of the money, have we? Right? We haven't seen that where tomorrow's dollars are worth uh, are, are worth less, or there's less of them because they're they're worth less, which means you got to trade more of them, right? But when you look at that, you're you're making an agreement that for the next thirty years, I'm going to pay you this many dollars, and we're going to do it this way. As your rents inflate, we call it cash flow. But it means you're receiving more dollars, you know, to that same inflationary thing. You look at it and in a matter of six months. We cured the uh, the minimum wage argument. Right. We now no longer need to worry about seven seventy five an hour. Right. We're now at 15 bucks an hour at McDonald's because supply and demand took care of the issue. No, because deflation or sorry, inflation took care of the value. Now, the people that are getting fifteen dollars an hour one might argue are worse off than they would have been had they not, had they stayed at 775. And I remember this conversation with my dad and my son, uh, who's now 25. Uh, when he was 16, he just got his first job. He was, you know, making 775 at Pizza Hut. He was really excited about that. We were all very, very proud of him because he got a job. You know, this was during the 09 crisis. I mean, you know, 43 job uh, applications at that time to get a job, right? That's how bad the, the market was. And 
he gets this job and my dad and he start having this conversation about 775. Oh, Papa, you know, when you were a kid, what did you get paid? And my dad goes, well, I, I got 265, right? That 265, then I said, wait a minute, let's have the conversation about what could you buy with 265. We started talking about a gallon of gas was a quarter, so you could get 10 gallons of gas. 775, gas was, let's call it a dollar. You couldn't get 25 gallons of gas, right? You couldn't, you, 10 gallons, you couldn't even, nothing was the same, Levi's, sneakers, a meal, Nothing was the same. And so inflation has continued to eat that. And like you said, Paul, the more debt you can pull on now in a, in a responsible manner, you're going to parlay that into the future because you're going to have the ability to pay back with tomorrow's dollars that are, there's going to be a, a bigger stack of them. And I would, I would also make the final argument here that your home, this is where most people go, man, my house has gone up a value of hundred grand. I would challenge you. Does your three-bedroom, two-bath now have, did it sprout an extra bedroom? Does it have a third bay on the garage? What has changed because we're so programmed with dollar-denominated thinking that we don't realize our house didn't do anything? Our greenbacks did, right? Again, proving your point of, of getting the debt to pay back for tomorrow. 100%. So, now we know where you're at. You're conservative in your underwriting. You're in this for the long haul. Extending your hold period is better than trying to make the quick buck, flipping out, trying to deal with the new and improved interest rates, right? I don't really mean improved. <laughs> but at the same time, we're sitting here dealing with all these functions and all these things. What, is your, what has changed with where you're at today versus your investment strategy of eight months ago? Well, I would say, um, just generally speaking, there's been more competition in the marketplace. There's more new entrants into the space. Uh, you've got a lot of institutional interest. Um, you've got a lot of new syndicators that are coming into the space that are green and are ready to go hard. Um, so, you know, assets are, are trading at high valuation still. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been on property tours and, and, you know, had 20 LOIs submitted and just decided, you know, we're not going to feel really good if we win this deal. Um, so, I think for me, what's changed is I'm sort of branching out geographically a little bit more on my, the active side of my business. Um, I formed a kind of loose joint venture partnership with a guy down in Florida. So we've started reaching out to brokers and gotten, um, you know, some key principles lined up and, and some other partners lined up if we find the right asset to execute on in, in Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville. So kind of looking in, in different markets to, to follow the money, really. I mean, if you think about passive investors and where they want to invest, they've heard the stories and all the demographic trends that are going on, the, the positive benefits uh, politically and from a business climate standpoint in places like Texas, Florida. So there's just a lot of transaction volume, a lot of money flowing in those markets. Uh, and I think it makes sense to be involved at some level. So we expanded a little bit geographically and, um, you know, really looking to collaborate with more people too. I've been pretty hyper, hyper local and focused, like I mentioned, um, kind of being a one-man band with, with a few joint venture partners here and there. Um, at this point, um, you know, I'm looking to kind of scale and grow bigger. And I realize that this is a team sport and you need more than just yourself. Um, I think I bring a lot of skills to the table. So I'm looking to kind of collaborate with others and, um, you know, just go from here. But I'm in it, like I said, I'm in it for the long haul and I'm extremely patient to, uh, to probably an annoying degree. So I, I'm in no rush. Uh, what I do know is that I don't want to go back to what I was doing before in my corporate career. Uh, and I know that I need to stay in the game. So if that means sitting on the sidelines for a while or just kind of building up 
uh, you know, the processes and the systems and the connections to actually execute when things go south in the market potentially and be able to capitalize on that, then that's what I'll do. You know, I, I, I heard you say a lot of things that make a lot of sense. I mean, we are, you know, my, my main focus primarily has been in Boise, Idaho, right? And, and we've been making a lot of headlines for the last 10 years. And now we're making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. You know, most highly appreciated market, uh, most overpriced market, all those kinds of things. And we've done that same thing. We're now from Washington to Florida uh, in different deal markets because deals are still there to be had uh, for various reasons. But we, you know, expanding your criteria, you've learned a skill right? You've got it mastered and you know Indy, right? You've been there for eight years. You, you, you've driven the streets. You can touch it. You can, I don't know that you want to taste real estate. That's probably pretty gross. But, but you, know, you know what you're doing. And now to move out from that, you also, in doing your gig, have learned what's important to you. So now you can look at the next guy and go, this is a, this is a good partnership. Yeah. He's got some skill sets that I don't. He's in a market I'm not. He's able to help me in ways that make sense so that I can do these things, right? So there's a lot there that you're doing that I, that I totally agree with. When you're looking at this, the other thing I heard you say is patience. You know, I hear people, man, we got, you know, we got our fifth deal that we underwrote. I kind of go, ooh, how's that working out for you? You know, because, because, you know, a lot of times you hear, I love hearing, don't love it for their sake, but love hearing a guy that had to underwrite 100 deals, right? It means that he's conservative. It means that he has has taken a really broad glimpse of the market as to what could be good and what could be bad. So uh, very excited for what you've got going there. Did you have something to add? No, I just, uh, you know, I think that uh, sometimes you see on, on social media or in other avenues, you know, you just see a lot of people celebrating a lot of uh, wins, a lot of acquisitions. And, um, you know, there's certain people that have better deal flow that have better economies of scale or better relationships with brokers. And, and that's understandable, but there's also, I think those that are stepping on the gas sometimes a little bit too aggressively in a, yeah. in a, in a little bit of a choppy water environment. Um, we're also looking at, you know, the other thing I would add to uh, how we're kind of shifting is we're looking at development. I know you've got a background in development. Um, you know, when you think about the cap rate compression between A, B, and C class, it might be 100 basis points. It might be even less in some markets. So uh, when I look at that, I see that people are paying too much for future rent rolls. Uh, the yield on cost of the project is too low. There's not enough spread between the yield on cost and the market cap to, to get me excited. And then even if you do finish the asset and you execute your value, I'd plan you're left with a 1960s, 70s product that's maybe got 50 years left on it. That's going to have ongoing maintenance issues. So if you can build something and have a hundred year runway on that asset that has no obsolescence, that has great floor plans, it's going to have a lot of demand where there's uh, not enough supply, then you know, why not take that route? So I'm not there yet. I'm learning the ropes, but I'm very excited about that potential. Too. Well, and, you know, you know, just like you said, I mean, this is a 1973 model, right? I mean, <laughs> it's got some bumps and bruises, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to hit the, the, the eight foot ceiling for sure. But at the same time, you're, you're looking at other ways to do it. And I love what you said, because you're not there yet. I love it when people say that because they understand their limitations. They understand where they need to continue to grow. They understand where strategic alliances will be of benefit to them, right? That to me is the voice of prudence, right? That to me is the voice of somebody going, I see it. I do. But, you know, we can all look at uh, what, what happened with, um, you know, a certain unnamed uh, online real estate company. I won't say who it is, but they are now dealing with massive losses because of their uh, 
the way that they handled their portfolio, they had a bunch of people that knew what they knew, what they knew, but they didn't know what they didn't know. Right. And at the end of the day, they got into a situation, they got into an area where they couldn't sustain what their model was telling them because they didn't know really where the ceiling was and their experience got out way ahead of their cash flow. And at the end of the day, they were being destroyed. They still are. Thank you. I'm glad about that. Uh, <laughs> because they didn't understand the market. They didn't really understand what was going on and they didn't know how to deal with it moving forward. So you bring up some very valid points and I commend you for knowing where your, where your limits are and how, but, but I also know because of our interview, I know that you understand how to gain that knowledge right? How to go get what you're needing to increase your portfolio. Strategic alliances, watching people do it, you know, being with mentor groups, all of those kinds of things. But, but Paul, this has been a really great interview and I really appreciate your depth of knowledge in your uh, area. I mean, you, man, when you dive in, you really dive in. And, and that, is, that is something that, that experience will buy you or books will teach you but without discipline, you'll never keep it and you'll never be able to protect your investors if you're not disciplined because we've all heard the same thing, right? None of this is new news, right? Uh, it's just about how you're applying it to protect your investors because you're right. You are their custodian and they are, I mean, I, I, you know, this for me, when people invest with me, it's a humbling experience and I'm sure you're the same way. Because people are giving you the, their blood, sweat, and tears. They're 80 hours a week, 80 nights on the road. They're giving you that money. You better take care of it. And it sounds like you're really doing a great job. And I really appreciate all of your insight on helping us understand that there is responsibility with that. Yeah, For sure. I, I, would, I would agree with everything you said there. It's a, it's a fiduciary responsibility and it's, uh, it shouldn't be taken lightly. So uh, I'd rather risk my own capital than others. There, there's a lot to be said for that. It's sure a lot easier to sleep at night knowing that you got a good, you got a deal going south, uh, but nobody's responsible for that. But you and nobody's going to deal with it. Uh, have to have to clean up after you. Yeah, definitely for sure. So, Paul, let's talk about as we close up here this episode. Where can people find you in the great world of the internet? Uh, two places are probably best. First, my website it's uh, RedHawkInvesting.com. Uh, I'm on there and posting regular blogs and uh, see my projects and everything I got going on there. Um, the other is LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, so you can reach me there. And those are probably the best two spots. Awesome. Well, guys, as you know, we're going to post those two uh, links in the show notes here. You're going to have those. And always, guys, like and subscribe to our podcast here. Uh, give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. You're going to see more incredible guests just like Paul. And reach out to us at shannonrobnet.com. We'd love to give you a free info guide on how you too can be involved in syndications. You can learn from people like Paul on how they're doing it and why they're doing it. Guys, once again, thank you for tuning into the Real Estate Rundown. Paul, thanks for stopping by. Guys, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Shannon. That's a wrap for today's episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnet.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.